I was like, I need to work harder. If I work harder, I'll get more done. That is such a myth. That is such a myth. Especially, look, I, I mean, back when it was like, okay, you gotta, you know, sew laces onto the, uh, you know, into the soles of shoes because you work in a shoe factory. Yeah, like every hour you're working, you're, you're getting more shoes made. But that is not how it goes in an information economy. Hey everybody, what's good? Welcome back to the Next Move podcast. And if this is your first time on the show, we're a podcast that shares the strategies, stories, and tools of people who are making an impact in their field. And today I have Rand Fishkin with me, who is an entrepreneur. He's the founder of Moz, which is one of the premier search engine optimization companies in the planet. He's more recently the founder of SparkToro, which is an audience intelligence marketing platform. And he's also an author. And if you guys have been watching my podcast very closely, you would have seen the book, this little blue book on my shelf right here. But today I've made it a little bit more visible and it's called a lost in founder. And just as a fun fact, it is the only book that I have read more than once. And the reason behind it is it's because it's such a true look into what the world of entrepreneurship is like. And I, I really loved it because it was so brutally honest into what a different view than what the media portrays it as. And today we're going to be diving into three very important things to me. We're going to be diving into the power of original thought in a world where there's so many ideas and information and voices out there. How do you cultivate your own? We're also going to be talking about the power of being vulnerable and open with the people around you that you love. And last but not least, we're going to be talking about prioritization. So without further ado, I want to bring you in, Rand. How are you? Great, great to be here. Thanks for having awesome. me. I, I'm, so, I'm so happy to have you on. And I, I, I want to throw you a little bit of a left field question to start with that doesn't go into one of those three categories is that if I look at pictures of 2012 Rand or 2013 Rand, it, it seems that you've kind of transformed your body and you've transformed your look. And I don't know if I'm wrong here. Let me know if I'm wrong. Um, it seems like you've gotten a lot leaner. I, I love the fade you've got. You've got a patented mustache. And I want to know, did you make a conscious effort to transform yourself? And if you did, why did you do it? And how did you do it? Um, a, I guess, thank you. <laughs> That's very kind. Uh, uh, but no, I did not make a conscious effort um, to transform myself. I think, let's see, I am, I am about 15 pounds lighter than I was maybe at my like heaviest, which was... Uh, probably around 2007 or so, eight. And I don't know, I've been kind of steadily losing a little bit of weight here and there since then. I don't know that there's a whole lot to attribute it to. I'm just pickier about what I eat, but um, I don't, yeah, I don't have a, a, a very intentional thing. I don't go to the gym or anything like that. Uh, my hairstyle, yeah, changes a lot, except for the past year because of quarantine, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, historically I, I tried a ton of different things. I had that crazy mustache for a few years when I was, when Moz was unprofitable and I was trying to convince them to get to profitability, but yeah, I don't know. I guess I, there's a lot of people who have sort of taken photos over the years, like from whiteboard Friday videos, right at, over at Moz or from conferences and events that I speak at and 
you know, compiled them all together and been like, oh, look, it's this looks changing. And I don't know, like, I guess I find it kind of funny, but it's not a, it's not something I focus on much. Okay, cool. I, I, I just had that thought in my head and I, I wanted to see if it, if it was a conscious thing. And it kind of leads- I mean, you've got, some, you've got some pretty killer hair, my friend. Like, <laughs> you're rocking that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, so it, it kind of it kind of leads me into my initial thought of original thinking and the power of it. Because again, when I was reading this book, it just struck me how different it was to what the media portrays as entrepreneurship. There's so many things that I got out of it that said, "Do I actually want to be an entrepreneur?" Is this? And it's the first time that I ever really questioned that. So I want to ask you again, in a world where there's so much information out there, how do you find ways to think for yourself? I think actually it's easier than ever because there are so many unique sources of information and that includes individuals on social media, for example, that you can follow. That includes uh, people with small publications and niche publications. And so I I think by uh, a combination of you know, having strong viewpoints that are loosely held, meaning they can be easily challenged by new data and information or new perspectives that sort of open your eyes to things. Um, that can be uh, a, a great way to expand your horizons. And it's certainly something that I, I hope I do a lot of. I, I try to listen to folks, especially, um, and, and I have a broad network of people I like and respect. I get into arguments occasionally with them and then I learn new things. And um, I, I think that can be a wonderful way to grow as a person. And, and as an entrepreneur, when, you were, when you're going through this journey, right, you must have so many people who say like, you know, why don't you go down this road or why, why don't you take this path or not? And how do you kind of take that information and, and decipher what you want to do next? I mean, I think we all have instincts, right? We, we sort of have something that guides us internally and tells us what we what we do and don't want to do, uh, and then and then there's those options, right? There's unpleasant options that we could take that we know we wouldn't enjoy, but perhaps the I don't know financial benefit is big or the status benefit is big, or we think it'll really help us accomplish some goal. And so, you know, in some cases, we say yes to those things. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. So I had a, um, you know, it was one of the, one of the big, big ish tech companies offered me a, I guess it was like a seven figure a year job, which is kind of crazy um, to get paid that much. And this was, this was just as I was leaving Moz and I sort of considered it for a minute and uh, talked to, talked to Geraldine about it, my, my wife. And I think, you know, she was sort of of the mind like, well, you could do that for three, four years and then do whatever you want, right? That, that could be really exciting. And I, um, I could not bring myself to, to do it. And in, instead, you know, got paid a, a very comparatively paltry salary. Basically the uh, average of a Seattle software engineer is what Casey and I pay ourselves at SparkToro. Um, I actually didn't take a salary for the first year at this at this company, but I because I knew I wanted to start something of my own, and I felt like I didn't have enough time left in my career to do it well to to 
understand the field, to take advantage of things. Um, I just didn't want to waste any more time before I got started. And so that, um, yeah, that ended up being, being my decision. I'm very happy with it. I don't, I don't need a whole lot of money. I do love building this company and um, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for the world. And, and I know you, you started with joining your mom before you started in, at, at a marketing consultancy before you started and transitioned into moms. But is there a specific reason that you, and again, that you chose to start your own business and that you choose to turn down this great opportunity? Is there something inside of you that says that I would like to be my own boss or what is it that drives you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think that's definitely true, and I also think I feel a. It's almost less that I need to be my own boss, and that I need to be in charge of the product, <laughs> right? So I just need to make sure that there's not someone else um, above me that can overrule decisions about what the product should do, or how it should work, or. Uh, what we should focus on next or what to build. And that's not to say I am not a product genius, like not everything I do today, this morning, Armin, we had uh, a big launch, you know, pushed out a feature we've been working on a couple of weeks. It, it landed totally flat. Like nobody cares at all. It is not getting any traction. It's, it's like one of my least popular blog posts, tweets, shares, LinkedIn posts. Like it's just, you know, complete failure. But I need... For me, I need the ability to be able to uh, learn from that and, and sort of control um, what we get to do next and what we focus on. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't stomach the idea of those, those last few years of Moz again, where you know, I sort of feel this strong, I hope it's data-backed, but, but data-backed um, inclination to do something, to make certain changes, to make certain kinds of investments and not others, and then be prevented from that by leadership that, um, that doesn't believe in it or doesn't believe in me. So that's very frankly where I'm at. I, I just can't go to a job and do the work and get paid and be happy. It's, it seems like it's, it's like a freedom thing, right? You want to be able to, it's, it's like your little playground almost in a sense. You want to be able to do what you want to do. And again, th that brings me back to, again, thinking for yourself. When you're coming up with features, and again, in the book, you talked about so many ideas and new projects that you wanted to implement and that you did implement that may not have gone the way you wanted them to. And you go into great detail, which is amazing. But when you're at that idea process, right? Even you can take this as before you started SparkToro. How do you come up with ideas? Do you, do you like sit alone in a room and say, you know, I'm just going to think for two hours or does it, is it just something that comes to you as you're going along with your day? Yeah. Ideas come to me all the time. Uh, but I don't, I would not say that I'm someone who sort of spends a long time intentionally thinking about something, right? It's, in, it's instead that I consume lots of other stuff, right? So I consume people's content or I uh, uh, read, you know, um, news and articles. I, I do a tremendous amount of reading. And, uh, and also I do a ton of uh, consumption of fiction. So like graphic novels and trade paperbacks and, and um, a lot of television and movies. 
I, I am a very fiction oriented consumer. I love that stuff, especially, I love it when it's done well. Um, and also it, you know, that and, and those other things all combine to give me a lot of inspiration. And then I, I do spend a good amount of time ruminating on ideas before I sort of bake them into something of, oh, we should really do this. When, when you're thinking about the idea of, of, you know, you're ruminating it, do you, do you kind of have a way to filter out whether it's good? Do you use like a pros and cons list? Do you, how do you go about deciding whether an idea is good? Yeah, I think um, pros and cons for sure. I think most of it, you know, in, in the early stages of a company's product is opportunity cost, right? So Casey and I have very limited amounts of time. There's only the two of us, right? We don't, we don't really have anybody else that we can um, rely on. We, use, we do use some contractors, but for generally not for product or engineering stuff. Um, and, you know, we have a limited supply of cash from our, from our fundraise a couple of years ago. Yeah, almost two years ago. Uh, and, you know, we, we basically have to determine how are we going to put those you know, dollars and efforts and time that we do have to work in ways that um, will hopefully most move the needle on the business and be valuable to customers. And, and that is most of the energy and effort that I spend ideating, right? It is, it's not a, well, if we launch this, you know, here's the good part of it, here's the bad part of it. It's more the, here's the hundred thousand things we could do, which one bubbles to the top, right? I, I love that idea because I wanted to get into prioritization later, but it, it seems like a great fit now. So again, in a world where you have so much that you can do, SparkToro can probably go in a thousand different avenues and do a thousand different things at once. How, how do you go about choosing this is what is going to get my intention for the yeah. year, for the month and for the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great question. So I think product prioritization is actually a really challenging thing for a lot of founders and a lot of product uh, managers. And my advice would be that you should not, you should never separate product prioritization from the positioning and marketing and uh, influence that you wanna have over your audience, right? The perception that you want people to have in the marketplace about what your product is and what it does and who it's for and how it helps them uh, and what problems it solves, like that, that, um, that's sort of the strategy of how your product will help people solve their problems and what it solves. And if you deviate from that too much, your product becomes confusing. I really try and connect up, right? And Casey and I have talked about this a whole bunch. I really try and connect up, like, what is SparkToro trying to be? And for us, what, for example, we do not really want to be a pure CRM outreach tool, right? Like we're, we're not trying to be the, oh, yeah, you go to, um, uh, you know, you go to SparkToro and it's basically another Cision, which is a PR uh, database tool or Muckrack or, or Just Reach Out or something, you know, something like that, where you just like go figure out which media you're going to reach out to and then you get their email addresses and you manage the contact. That's, that's not us. What we really do want to be is a replacement for the most painful and challenging parts of market research. Like, how do I understand my audience at scale, any audience at scale, 
I want to know what plumbers in Florida think, read, watch, do, talk about, discuss, follow, engage with, listen to. I, I, I want to know everything about them that I possibly can garner from their online presences. Um, that's what SparkToro wants to help with. And so a lot of our features by design are trying to solve that problem more so than other potential problems. And in doing so, right, we hope that the product itself, the launches, the, the marketing around the launches helps position us in that, in that consumer mindset. And that's how I would urge you to think, right? Start with the strategy of what are you solving, for whom, why, how. Okay, now that, that's what you go build features for. And I'm very interested because, again, I feel like you can kind of put this into your life almost as well. It's like, what, what are you trying to do with your life? And then, you know, put in features that get you to that objective. Yeah, and, man, you uh, are on it. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you, uh, how long do you give yourself with a feature to get it done? And afterwards, again, like you said today, how long will you keep it there to, to say, is it a success? Is it a failure before you kind of move on to the next thing? Ooh, interesting. I want to say I'm, I, I kind of fall in between the, I'm willing to let something slow burn. I think the nice thing in software is that once you've launched a feature, unless it has a lot of data upkeep, you can afford to keep it for a long time um, and see how it gets used and learn from the usage patterns before you decide whether to invest in it or ditch it or, or those kinds of things. And yeah, we've had, uh, we've had a few features, data elements that we ditched. So the, the very early version of SparkToro, for example, had an events tab and um, it, it was really cool in a lot of ways. It just didn't have the coverage or consistency of coverage that we wanted. And so we, we felt that it was going to make us um, look worse, make the product look uh, and feel less comprehensive and accurate and consistent than what we wanted, right? We wanted it to be that every tab you visited in SparkToro to get data about your audience, that each of them would be so insightful and so obviously sort of correct and have enough data that folks would be impressed and find it useful in each of those tabs. And, and events was not like that for a lot of audiences that people searched for. So we ended up ditching it. Um, we actually instead, I think Casey had built the YouTube channels um, tab and that ended up being more compelling with a lot less work. So. We were like, okay, we'll, we'll launch with that. We'll revisit events uh, in the future. And then of course COVID hit and we were like, oh, I'm really glad we didn't invest like, you know, 12 months in events because there's, there's really no events anymore. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I think we would have pivoted to being like focused on webinars and that kind of thing, but oof. yeah. Right. And I, I, I kind of like, I love that because again, it brings the idea of, of simplification to me. Um, hmm. When, when you were, again, we, we tend to think that this kind of has parallels to personal productivity and, you know, with product as well, we tend to think that the more complex or the more hardworking or the more intense that a situation is, we kind of are brushing our ego and we feel like we're doing more. Do you have any like 
experiences other than that where simplifying either your life and your to-do list or your product has been super beneficial for you? Yeah, yeah. So um, at Moz, I think one of the things that frustrated me a ton was that there was a, a tremendous amount of communication overhead and a ton of permission overhead. So if you wanted to do something, let's say I wanted to launch X or Y or Z, that the, the chain of getting permission and buy-in and, uh, and all that was frankly terrifying. Like I, I had a very difficult time getting anything done towards the end there. There were a few times where I think I even mentioned one in the book where I like went to an engineer who I knew was leaving the company, right? He, he quit and he was, I think in his last like three or four weeks. And I was like, Hey, Kenny, can you launch this thing for me? Like, just don't, don't tell anyone, just push it to production. Like, just make this change. And the team was infuriated, like just so pissed. The product manager, the designer, like a lot of people were really pissed off. And then, you know, the, thank God, the usage rates showed that it was like, I think we had like a 30% increase over the course of two weeks in, in use of this feature and like people, you know, uh, engaging with it. And so I kind of was like, well, but it worked, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, woof. I, I think, you know, realistically, if I had gone through the, the process, I would have taken months if it ever happened. Um, and I think, you know, I think this is one of Moz's big challenges, right? They've got to figure out a way to, 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 to change that. But in terms of simplification, right, when I started SparkToro, I, I wanted to have the exact opposite experience of that, meaning there was no... No, you know, the permissioning was random Casey chat. If we agree, it happens. That, that's it, right? There's no, uh, there's no formal process for that. We don't like have a, a um, really a system of an email and our, and our conversations. We're going to keep the team incredibly small so that this will be the case for as long as possible. Uh, we are going to have only two communication channels. We've got the phone and email. No Slack, no mess, like none of the other things. We're, we're staying away from all of it. Just uh, phone and email. Um, we are both very email centric in our workload. And so I basically have everything in my professional life and almost everything in my personal life go through my email and calendar so that I never have to deal with any other communication channels, right? That, I check my Instagram DMs once a year. I check my Facebook messages like once a year, right? Like I just, nope, there's nothing but, nothing but email and calendar, that's it. If you're not on my, in my email inbox or in my calendar, you don't exist and I don't have to worry about it. And if I'm at inbox zero and there's nothing on my calendar, I'm free, I can go watch TV, I'm good, I'm done, right? So of my task mm -hmm. in my email too. Wow, and I was kind of saving this question for later, but it, it fits in. Uh, wh why do you make your email so available? It, it's not hard, like for other people, when I'm finding people to get into get in touch with for the podcast, it's like a struggle, a search. It, you know, it's a it's a puzzle. But with you, it was out there. So I kind of want to know why did you make that decision to make it so open? I make it available. I think for for three reasons, right? One, because I am pretty fast at email and it is a great relationship builder for me and a great learning engine for me as well. Um, it's also a great marketing engine, right? So I get a lot of 
things like this, right? Invitations to be on a podcast or to contribute to something or to join a webinar or to um, whatever it is, you know, participate in some uh, online streaming event or historically a lot of conferences and stuff too. And many of the wonderful things that have happened in my personal and professional life have come from those contacts and the, you know, the overhead of having spam or some irrelevant messages like that, it doesn't bother me much, right? Gmail's filters are pretty good. Uh, hitting archive or delete is not hard, right? It takes literally seconds. So I don't mind having, you know, a hundred emails a day. That's fine, right? I can, I can get through them pretty darn quickly. I can um, create a tremendous amount of value. And to your point, right, I want, I want the hey, let me see, who should I invite on my podcast? Oh, what about Rand Fishkin? Can I find his email? I want that to be an incredibly low friction e exercise, right? So that it, it presents the sort of maximum opportunity um, and minimum cost for the, whatever, the host, the, the invitee um, or the inviter. And, and that has, that's historically worked really well. Oh, I, I would encourage other people to do it too. I think there's a lot of this like, oh, I got to protect my email address so I don't get messages. I think that hurts you more than it helps you. And, and that's kind of been, I guess, like a theme for you throughout your career because when you started SEO Moz, the blog, it was just about opening up information. And, and this kind of is a parallel to that. And I want to, I, I listened to a podcast that you did with Chase Jarvis. And mm. this is a question about, personal productivity. And it's a question that I struggle with daily. It's how do you know when to stop working? You talked about when you were with Moz and there was some struggles you, you had, you got rid of your anti-work night, but you, you said you should have added more nights where you didn't do anything. Can you talk about why doing less and actually taking more time to recover could actually be more beneficial for you and your business? I'll give you a scenario that I think will sound familiar, I'm guessing to you and, and to our listeners today, which is sometimes you, you'll go on vacation, right? So you, whatever, you're at a job or you're working, you're building your thing and you go on vacation, you sort of tune out for a while. Maybe you answer a few emails here and there, but sort of like your inbox stacks up and your to-do list stacks up and you come back and it's two weeks later, let's say. And you get back to work and it's, it's Monday morning and you look at your inbox and you look at your task list and you're like, oh my God, I'm, this is going to be a nightmare. Like, holy crap, I'm, how am I ever going to finish this? And then you look up on Wednesday or Thursday and you're like, oh my God, I got it all done. This is, that's kind of incredible. I, how did I get through all of that? It, that's amazing. I just did two weeks of work in like two days or three days. Why did that happen? Why is that such a consistent, familiar pattern? And the answer is because when you recharge for a week or two by taking vacation, your productivity, your ability to uh, solve problems and get tasks done, your mental uh, state, and this is, this is universally true for human beings. Like we are, we are just, we just work like this uh, it goes massively up. It literally 5x, 10x, uh, 20x. And I'm the same way. If I take, if I really take a weekend off, I can get through an incredible amount of work come Monday. 
And if I don't, if I'm sort of like half working through the weekend and feeling overwhelmed and blah, 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 like the, the next week drags on the same way. Answering an email takes a long time, right? I stare at it. I'm like, oh, how should I reply? I, I'm still probably relatively fast, right? But, but my relative fastness is much slower than my well-rested vacationed self. Quarantine's actually been really tough for this, right? Because you can't, you kind of can't get away. And so I, I think a lot of people feel like they are less productive because they don't get the breaks that they're used to. Um, and that, so that doesn't surprise me at all, right? That vacations have almost disappeared from work culture because where can we go and what can we do, right? And uh, for a lot of people, right, they have whatever their kids or families or partners with them or roommates and like no one can get away from anyone. It's, so that, I think that's really hard as well. And I just, I just say like be, be conscientious of this, this way in which human beings operate. And I was not, right? I was like, I need to work harder. If I work harder, I'll get more done. That is such a myth. It is such a myth. Especially, look, I, I mean, back when it was like, okay, you gotta, you know, sew laces onto the, uh, you know, into the soles of shoes because you work in a shoe factory. Yeah, like every hour you're working, you're you're getting more shoes made. But that is not how it goes in an information economy. So, so what do you? What are your practices? Do you take a day off? Do you take the weekend off? How do you make sure that? you're properly rested to go for the next day. Yeah, um, let's see, in normal times, I am, uh, yeah, taking, I, I would say I do a little bit more of the lean very heavily into working hard for longer hours and then have like a bigger break, right? Sort of vacation, so binge and almost like a binging purging model, right? Like, ah, I'm working really, really hard okay, I'm completely on vacation and just like, you know, going to Italy for two weeks and I'm coming back and I'm working really hard. And then, okay, we're going to go, I don't know, down to Ashland and see a bunch of plays this week. Like that, that kind of thing. Um, during quarantine, you know, the last, whatever, nine months now, almost 10, um, it has been, I don't know, man, it's been more like, well, maybe I'll knock off work a little early and like, read something or play a video game or hang out with Geraldine or walk around my neighborhood, um, try and get some steps in and then come back and do some work later that night. That There's not a lot of healthy balance, to be honest, during, during uh, COVID. And I kind of wish, you were talking about organizations earlier. I wish organizations kind of took it on themselves to say that, look, it would actually be more productive if our team members just stayed home and did nothing, but it feels silly. You know, I'm an employee. I, I would feel silly to ask, you know, I want to go on vacation, but they'll just say, what are you going to do? Right. So I, I well, this is go ahead. Like when you look at, um, uh, what is it? GDP per hours worked and the United States is like not good, right? The United States is like relatively low, especially if you exclude sort of the top 1% or whatever of, of companies. But, um, uh, France, right, where I think the average, the average hours worked is like 33 hours per week, but their GDP productivity per hours worked is crazy high, like, like super, super high, especially at the median 
uh, compared to the US. It's just insane, right? Like America obviously has a broken culture in a ton of ways and like this sort of weird puritanism, unhealthy, you know, work is everything. And if you work harder, you can get ahead, which of course is, is also not true, has, hasn't been true for 30 or 40 years now um, as the data shows. And yeah, we, we, got, we got to change, man. We do. And I, I, I do want to ask though, because you do work very hard. I, this is kind of like a fundamental question. And you, you can tell me if, if you don't have a concrete answer here, but why do you push so hard? What, what is it at the back of your mind that you want to achieve from your career? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the there's three things that really drive my desire to sort of you know build a big and successful company. One of those absolutely is um, uh, like a, a sense of of pride and of proving some people wrong. And it's not the most healthy of motivations, but it is a a powerful motivation, right? Um, like proving to myself and to others that I can do it. I think that is that is the motivation. Uh, the second one is I am I am very passionate about wanting to change a lot of things in startup and tech culture and company building and entrepreneurship culture. And I don't think that I can do those things unless I can point to companies that I have built that have been very you know successful by by um, the the metrics of made a lot of money for their whatever founders, investors, employees, delighted a lot of customers, that kind of thing, right? So uh, that is definitely true. And I, I feel a strong pull to do that in a way that is non-traditional, like, you know, SparkToro has this very weird uh, funding model, which shouldn't be that weird, but it is weird because it, almost no one uses it. Uh, we have you know, this tiny little team, I want to prove that we can build something off of that. We have a, um, you know, we are not uh, 80 hour a week guys at all. Like you say, we work hard. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what Casey's hours are like, but I, I think they're usually between 40 and 50. And, you know, they're pretty off hours because Casey's a stay at home dad. He's got his kids, you know, um, uh, full time. His His wife works at a job where she like you know, she leaves the house, like he's, he's the one doing lunches and making sure they're on their, their school meetings and making sure they're learning. He, yesterday, Casey's uh, youngest girl, you know, I call him up to talk about the feature we're launching and, and Nora wants to answer the phone. So she's like, hello, I'm learning about you. It was like, what? what? She, she's learning about me? No, no, Armand, she was learning about the letter U. <laughs> like, you know, she's learning all her letters and we just had this confused really confusing like co you know conversation whatever with a six-year-old uh, but it, you know it's fun right like he's he's uh both working and taking care of the kids and um i love that i i probably work an average of between 40 and 50 hours some weeks it's very heavy some weeks it's light but like i don't want I want to show people that you can do that, right? So that's a that's a big driver and motivator. And then I'll say the third one, which is my least favorite um, for sure, is I am 
I am scared as hell about how the United States uh, takes care of people, right? So when I get to be older and my wife gets to be older, like we, I feel very afraid that if we don't have a lot of money, uh, we will have a terrible short life because American healthcare and elder care and um, just American culture is very, either you're in the 1% or you're toast, right? Like it is just brutal. Um, and, and that, I think that's evil and wrong and the United States needs to change, but I, I don't have a lot of faith that that will necessarily happen. And so I'm scared. Like America has me scared for my future. And so, yeah, I, I feel like, hey, we, we got to make some money while it's possible. Wow. That, that's, that's, I, I love those motivators. And I just want to ask you, do you have like a way that you remind yourself of those motivators or is it just there in you? Like, do you put it on your phone? Do you have, you know, a post? Yeah, yeah. I have Google news that takes care of it. That'll <laughs> remind me every day, right. Of how, of brutalism and late stage capitalism compounding to make your future life hell. If you're not rich, <laughs> no, no, I, I, um, I think I, in, I intrinsically know these things. I'm, re, I'm regularly reminded of them. I think the, the good motivators, right? The motivator of, I want to share, I want to have people sort of wake up and go, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe I can do things in this other different way as well. Maybe I don't have to work hard, maybe I can work smart. Maybe I don't have to work all the time. Maybe I should take more vacations and nights off and go watch some TV and play some video games and have fun with my life. And then when I come back to my work, I'll be even more productive. And I, I, I want to change that conversation. Um, and I don't, I don't think I can do that until and unless I, I sort of show whatever, you know, remarkable success, which unfortunately in, in our culture means mostly financial success. Um, and so that's a, that's a constant reminder. Every time, every time I do an interview with someone like you, right? I'm like reminded, oh yeah, all right. That's, how, do we, how do I get more people to, to believe it, right? There's someone listening right now who's like, yeah, yeah, right. You know, they're, they're not quite buying in. They don't, they don't think it's true. But depending on where my career gets to, they might change their mind. Maybe that sucks, but it's also reality. And I'm, I'm really hoping you achieve that because I think it's such, it's such an important thing. I think working all the time and sitting all the time and just being stressed all the time is just killing us early and there's so much to enjoy with life. So I really hope you succeed with that mission and I think you are succeeding. And I've been doing this thing where I kind of wait until I crave working, you know, like yeah. kind of going off and then I want to work. Do, do you do the same yes. thing? That's, that is a beautiful way to put it. I love that phrasing because I think that when you are inspired to work, it's, that is when you will make your best decisions. That is when you will do your best work. That is when your productivity and output will be not, not just 10 times better, but so much more creative, so much more unique and, and game-changing than the standard, well, I went through the motions of work. 
I looked like I was working. I got my work done. I was technically productive. I don't, I don't think that makes for remarkable, exciting um, innovation and invention and new things and compound growth. It's, it's a little bit of a hits-driven model, and that hits-driven model can exist inside you as well, inside the hours that you put in and when you're ready and inspired. Um, and, and all of us have that. Yeah, and I, I think that's what it was for me as well. And like you said, with everyone, it was an ego thing. Like, how many hours am I putting in? You know, am I, am I sacrificing sleep? But I've found, and I'm, I'm sticking with, and I hope it works, that if it's, if it's two hours of quality work, I feel happier with that than if I did 10 hours of just, you know, repetitive, you know, small moving the needle things. So I, I love that. And I, I want to move into the last kind of area of this interview that I'm really interested in is, is the power of being vulnerable. And one of the reasons why I resonated with your book so much was that you were so open in your book, like to the granular detail of how you're feeling. So I, I want to ask you, if it's okay, could you walk us through one of the more challenging times in your life or your career and, and ways that you took to get out of that period? Hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the frustrating part, I think, about going through a, you know, severe or acute time of mental and emotional distress is that there is no one solution that works for everyone. It, it's unique to every different person. Um, and so what worked for me might not work for you. But, you know, I think that uh, that period in my life was, it was a time when eventually, um, and I, you know, I wrote about this in the book, right? So Armand, you, you've, you've read about it. But, um, you know, when I was going through kind of my, my worst stages of uh, depression and anxiety and uh, just feeling hopeless. A lot of that, um, a lot of emerging from that took took a long time and consistent investments in sort of behavioral change that I was not always successful with, right? Like I knew I had to get more sleep and still sleep seemed to elude me for months and months at a time. And it was very, very hard. I knew that I needed um, to do, you know, physical therapy and, and my sort of have an, an exercise routine, uh, which I'm now very good at, weirdly. I don't know, you know, which one it is, right? There's, there's sort of this, like, what, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it you slept well and you did your exercises and you took time off from work and you didn't work too hard and so your depression went away or your depression started to fade and so you felt like you could do all these things um i, I don't know which one that is but i my bias is to invest in the behavior not the outcome and that that has been the most successful thing for me right i i know i can't always ward off days when i feel terrible about things or frustrated or angry um, or, or just unproductive, but I know I can always invest in behaviors. I can get up, I can do my physical therapy, I can be responsible about getting eight hours of sleep, I can, um, you know, whatever it is, try and walk away from the computer when I'm not feeling productive, those, those things are okay. 
And I, I've always been interested in asking people who have gone through, you know, the, these kind of times. Now that you've come so long from that, you know, you may feel it sometimes, but would you take it back if you could? Would you go back in time and kind of remove that from your life? Or, or do you think that it's been beneficial for you? Gosh, I mean, if I could go back in time, I, there's, there's a lot of decisions that I would change. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know, right? Like I'm, I'm happy that I discovered this sort of way of thinking differently and more broadly and um, challenged a lot of these assumptions, but I, I don't know, like if, if I went back in time and I made, let's say all the right decisions with Moz, right? And so things had just sort of gone along swimmingly and it kept growing and it became a billion dollar company and, you know, like made our investors super happy. Would I be, would I be like one of these tech bros who's just like, yeah, you got to work hard, man. And then, you know, build a billion dollar company. That's the only way. <laughs> I, I don't know. Right. Like, would I have that? Um, awful attitude. I hope not. I hope I still would have come to the, some of these more introspective conclusions, but it's, it's hard to say. Uh, this is why, I, <laughs> what's, the, what's the theory, right? The, the, most, the most likely theory of time travel now is that there's only a single thread of time, right? I think that physicists have, have put together. And so even if you were to be able to go back in time, while you could potentially have minor impacts, the ultimate result of your actions would still be the same because of the single threaded model, which feels a little bit like fate to me. So I'm not, I'm not completely convinced of that, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Time travel uh, paradoxes make me question the past, but in a, I like where I got to. Maybe that's okay. Maybe it's good enough. I, I, I like that thought because, you know, if, like you said, maybe in a parallel universe, other than this single thread theory that you just brought up, but maybe in a parallel universe and you did get there, maybe you wouldn't have realized all these things that are so helpful for you. I know, maybe I'm a total dick. Right? <laughs> maybe. Like, maybe I'm just an awful person, right? And you email yeah. me and you're like, hey, would you want to come on the podcast? And I'm like, who are you? Go away, right? Like maybe I'm just terrible. Right. Um, so, so maybe this is the version of me that, that I don't know, was supposed to exist or that we're both glad exists. Um, and that, that's a really hard thing. I think, I think the, the more difficult one for me is going and finding actions from my past that I, that I, I don't just regret the action itself, but also the outcome. Right. And there are, there are plenty of those too. I, you know, for whatever reason, um, like young men in their twenties are kind of terrible, right? Like <laughs> late teenagehood to like early twenties men are just, I don't know what it is, testosterone and culture. And um, yeah, I have lots of regrets about how I behaved and how I acted toward people around me. And, um, and I don't think the outcomes of those was healthy at all. Uh, I wish I could change that. Yeah. But, but again, they, they taught you that those are wrong. So maybe in the end, yeah. they are good things. 
Well, I don't know about that. I, I, I do think regret is a powerful behavior change mechanism, right? Like if you can reflect on the things that you did in the past that you wish you had not done, that you know now are wrong, as opposed to trying to justify your behavior through an alternative belief system, right? Just refusing to accept facts. I think there's a lot of people who do that, right? They, they try and justify their past behavior. They're, they're, they, they are unapologetic and they feel that that's somehow a strength and they don't focus on the regret that they have for their past actions and who it might've hurt and how it might've impacted themselves or the people around them negatively. Um, I mean, yeah, like, I have, I have people who are, you know, like I, I basically don't have a relationship with my dad because he, he can't do it. Like he fundamentally cannot have regret for the past and consider the way his actions influence people around him. And um, it's, it sucks. It's sad, right? Like, I don't know. It, it's terrible. Yeah, that's... That is, that is really tough. But I, I, I completely agree. Regret is a powerful motivator. And I just want to ask one more thing. And because in every interview, in every book, I mean, in, in your book and in every interview that I've listened to you, you always mention your wife, Geraldine. And she seems like such an important part of your life. And I, I know she is. But can you talk about in a world where we're also independent now, it feels like we're all kind of trying to be our own thing. Can you, is there value to codependence and are, are, do you feel you're codependent? Yeah, no, I think that's a really fair question. I, I would say Geraldine and I have talked about it um, very openly that we, we do have a codependent relationship, right? That we're, we're very reliant on each other for emotional support and for, um, I don't know, just be like the, the strength of our relationship together, the, the certainty that we're going to be together forever, that, you know, what, for, whatever forever means, right? Um, in terms of uh, uh, those things, but the certainty in the strength of that relationship powers the rest of our lives, right? It's essentially the, the foundation that everything else is built on. And so, I think that's a healthier form of codependency, but but it is not, uh, I am not an independent person, right? Like without Geraldine, I have a lot of trouble functioning. If you've ever been to like a, a conference or event where I'm there and she is not, like she accompanies me on a lot of, um, a lot of my trips, which is amazing. And, and, and I love that, right? And we often will take like a few days of vacation after it or whatever, but, um, when I'm away from her and engaging in those activities, I can get on stage, I can deliver a great talk, I can get high ratings from the audience, right? And, and drive a lot of value. However, once I'm off that stage, I am very uncomfortable. Like I, I have that separation anxiety. I am not um, my, my best, most um, whatever, uh, cordial and engaging self. Uh, so it, you know, that's a real, that's a real thing. I, I, I don't know that that's healthy. Maybe, maybe that's something to, to focus on as I get older in my life, but, um, yeah, it is, it is real. I, I will say that I don't, 
I don't have a lot of regret around this. I, I, I love love. Like I love it for myself. I love it for other people. When other people in my life find it, I, uh, I think it's the best thing, right? Like, um, I don't have that typical, you know, whatever entrepreneur male focus, like, uh, work, work, work and weddings. I hate weddings. Like, oh, they're so bored. Fuck that. I, there is nothing better in this world to celebrate than people who have found love and, and happiness from that. I don't, I don't even think the, I don't think there's a better thing in all of humanity than finding love, whether that's romantic or not. And celebrating that together, that's the best. That's what, that's the reason all of us work and do everything else is so that we can lean into those experiences. Um, at least I hope that's, that's why we're here. So yeah, I'm, um, I'm passionate about this, obviously, and I don't, I don't have a lot of embarrassment around it either. And, and I love that. And I particularly lo love what you said about that is the one consistent and constant because you know, it'll be there forever. And I think that's, that's incredible. That's, that's really, yeah, powerful. right. That, like that reliance, I think, I think for a lot of people, they don't have that certainty in the stability of their relationships, their, their human relationships, whether that's, you know, romantic love or not. And that drives all sorts of insecurity and that drives anxiety and it, it drives um, lack of productivity and it, it drives sort of fear. And from that fear, all kinds of negative behaviors emerge. And you can see this, you know, reflected in so many parts of, of society, right? Like what I, I look at, you know, the rise of conspiracy theories or the rise of like, you know, these, these, um, hate-based movements, uh, especially in the U.S., and a ton of it, a ton of it seems to be driven by loneliness and insecurity and, you know, fear and, and people who are alone and people who don't have um, other, other people in their lives. And so they're looking for this meaning and this belonging and this togetherness, and they find these really negative outlets for it, but they, they because they need something, right? They need that sense of connection and that way to interface with one another. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish we could promote a healthier version of that, but I don't know, maybe, maybe relationships like Geraldine and mine can do that. that that's so powerful. I, I do hope I find that one day because that seems that that's incredible. And yeah, I, I'm truly envious of that. And I, I just want to ask one quick fire question because I know we're we're coming to the conclusion here. Um, do you have a quote or, or some saying that you live, that you kind of constantly think about or that you live by? I do. Yeah, I, I do. I have several. Um, so there's this, there's this quote from uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel that um, he said, when I was young, I used to admire intelligent people. But as I grow older, I admire kind people. And I, I am not yet that old, but the, the older I get in my life, absolutely the more I question the value and <laughs> worth of being the smartest, the richest, the best at, 
the most physically fit, the strongest. I, those things are fine. It's not, it's not necessarily evil or wrong, except for richest. Richest is almost always correlated with evil, unfortunately. But um, kindness, my God, that, that is something to truly be valued in this world. I, I don't think there's a human quality that I admire more, that I want around me more, that I wish were more present in the world. Uh, I, I wish we could lean into that the way we lean into financial success. That again is, is so powerful. And I think ending there is perfect. Rand, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I had such a blast. Yeah, me too, man. This is, this is great. You are a wonderful interviewer. I mean, I, I, uh, I love the questions you asked. They, they were really unique. I feel like if anyone was listening to this compared to a lot of my other interviews, I think they got way more out of it. So thank you. Wow, thank, I, I really do appreciate that. And that, that means a lot. And thank you to everybody for tuning into this podcast. See you guys in the next one. Take care.